let's make thank you for your service more than just a slogan, Mm -hmm. right? Find a way to help a veteran and help us in ways that will allow us to grow in um, once we're done with our military service and allow us to thrive in society. You know, invest in those things, those promises that have been made for us. Invest in those promises that were made for us because we served. You know, don't, don't, don't have us leave our military service and then come back to a society that has thrived because of us, but is not ready for us. We are looking forward our way from Studio C in the 511 Studios. That's in the Brewery District, just south of downtown Columbus, Ohio. Hi, this is Brett. We are celebrating veterans this November, as well as supporting our current troops. This year, we are featuring female military members and veterans for their service to our country and for the challenges they have faced and are still continuing to face. We're honored to podcast with Dr. Dana L. Robinson-Street, hybrid urgent care provider for Ohio Health in the Urgent Care and Telehealth Clinic. She's um, also a doctorate-prepared nurse practitioner with a master's certification as a health professional educator and 25-plus years of active service in the United States Navy. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for your service. Thank you so much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Great. Wonderful. You know, we have um, been featuring veterans and veterans' issues for several years on our show, and it just seems like we have to take this pause every November Mm -hmm. and really look at what the issues are and make sure that our listeners recognize um, the service and the sacrifices. Uh, so we this is new for us to hear specifically about women veterans, but first let's hear just about you and what you've done. What you said you started, you went to the Navy as 19 out of Chicago. So let's talk about how, what brought you to that to that step. Uh, so when um, when I graduated high school, I I didn't really know what I wanted to do, right? Um, my family wanted me to go to school, of course, <laughs> but I wanted to try to find my own way. Right. Um, so I decided to find a job that I couldn't quit. And um, oh, that's a good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you found it. I did. Yeah. <laughs> good. That is that is excellent. <laughs> that, that's literally the reason. Uh, that was my motivation. Oh and. My gosh. Um, and once I was there, I realized that I didn't want to quit. And so I continued on. I had the opportunity to serve under five presidents, which I'm really proud of, from President Reagan to President Obama. And, um, and I had a very long, very interesting, and a wonderful career inside the United States Navy. Wonderful. Over your career, I'm sure you saw many changes in the role of women during that time. Give us your observations. You know, how did the military realize that the value women provide to the services, whether it's on the front line or at home? How did that change over your years serving? So when I initially uh, joined the mili- joined the Navy um, on active duty, back then they actually encouraged you to work in certain professions. Okay. Right? Um, and... Um, of course, you didn't know that. I didn't know that as a 19-year-old. Sure. Uh, right? Um, but I just noticed that um, my job was there was a, a lot of females in my office, right? Mm. And then other other uh, jobs had 
maybe they were male dominant with very few females or no females. Um, so um, back then, we were encouraged um, to to work in certain areas or work in certain professions um, based on the ASVAB score, but I, I don't necessarily know that it was truly just based on the ASVAB um, because you would think that all women didn't score for this particular job, right? right. Mm-hmm. So, it, um, but I do think that back um, back then we were more segregated based on gender, right? Um, sometimes based on culture, mm-hmm. yeah, and sometimes based on even race. Well, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, the options mm-hmm. were young women. If they weren't going to get married, they were teachers, librarians. Um, nurses. Store clerks, nurses. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there weren't, and and we were sort of pigeonholed in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. So when when you were, what was your first position in a medical area? No, I was actually what we called a radio man. Um, really? So yes, or now the the name has changed to IT. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I was enlisted, and I was enlisted for about seventeen years. Then I served as an IT working within the communications uh, area um, where we had to have um, clearances and you mm-hmm. worked with certain communications equipment and, you know, uh, we did things that were mostly communications based. Well, mm-hmm. One thing for sure, you were probably on a lot of cutting edge technology being in the service at, in that particular time. One hundred percent. Yes. Right. So there's there's lots to learn. But was it as fulfilling as you thought it was going to be? It was. Um, The departments were very small. We had um, we had high clearances. And so uh, based on based on the clearances that that we had, then um, it was more of a smaller workspace, you know, that was that was only accessed by people that could be inside or that was cleared based on a need to know the information that we had access to. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it was very fulfilling. It was very interesting. I learned a lot. Um, I had the opportunity to work with, it work in many different areas of communication. Um, I remember when we first started using computers, <laughs> we all thought we were going to die. <laughs> so they transitioned everything into these little oh, boxes. We, we were doing it stuff like in life. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yours is probably faster and more. It's like, no, you got to do it now, sort of thing. Where we was like, yeah, it'll come around. <laughs> right. And then we weren't using all the things that we were using before. Right. Right. And um, the. the Little boxes back then are much smaller boxes now, but (laughs) it's just amazing how we were on the cutting edge of technology. So um, the group was, was it predominantly the people you were working with, predominantly women? Yes, there was there was a lot of women okay. in, and um, it, yes, a lot, a min, many more women than men. Right, mm-hmm. and and the leaders of those groups were likely men. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So so it, you really were in an incredibly interesting time in the military branches because women were growing in numbers. Yes, and eventually getting to the point of growing in terms of rank. Yes. 
Yes, so it was a good time to be in the military in terms of opportunity, finally opening up for women. Well, I think back then you didn't um, pay as much attention to. It was just the norm. It was the norm of society. And um, just like uh, the military, we are comprised of members of society. It was just just the norm. And uh, so I don't necessarily believe that, um, that the majority of us noticed it. You know, we were just serving. Um, I can share with you uh, an example of when I I noticed. Um, I wanted to go to school. I was married, and um, my ex-husband and I, we have three sons. And our children um, were, I say zero, one, and two, but, you know, of course, <laughs> he was born, so he had an age. Um, but they, they were an age, um, they were one year apart. And um, although I, I feel like I took the long road to get to the shortcut, right, because I joined the military, I didn't want to go to school, and then, of course, it was my desire to um, increase my education. So I shared with um, my LPO, uh, leading petty officer, who was more, you would think of him as a, like a supervisor or a manager at an organization mm-hmm. that's not military. Well, I shared with him that I wanted to go to school, right? And he told me, he said, well, you can't go to school. You've got children, and you've got a husband, and you have to work. <laughs> and what I thought was, like, they could go to the club <laughs> all they wanted to, and they had wives, and they had children, and those things were available to them. But um, for me, having a desire to improve my life, you know, it was not necessarily encouraged by this person that I'm mentioning. Um, but... Uh, and then at the time, my ex-husband and I, we weren't doing too well. So, you know, we we're about to start going through our divorce. Uh, but I, I said to him that um, that failure is always an option, right? It, it really is. And, mm-hmm. and, that's, and that's true in life. Failure is always an option. And so I told him, I said, you know, I can not su- succeed by just not coming to work or I could just not do all these different things uh, related to my life and and I would fail, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. But I, I said, I dare you give me one reason why I can succeed, and that's the one that I'm going to go with, and that's the one that I'm going to continue to fight for. I said, because failure in life and in society and, and you know, just in general is always an option for everyone. But I just wanted one reason why I could succeed, and, you know, and he just looked at me, but... Um, I, I did. I went to school. My youngest son was uh, seven months old, and I earned my first degree with the University of Maryland, and I did not stop until my youngest son was 12 years old. And uh, so. And, mm. and if you don't take the step, you may not succeed, but you can't fail. Right. You have to take the step to get to go one of those two ways. So, That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, Dana, you started out in communications and moved mm-hmm. into healthcare. I'm guessing, and this is a guess on my part, that going into that healthcare also was good in terms of furthering education, furthering training, just because it's a necessity in, in the healthcare fields. Tell us a little bit about that change for you. So at the age of 16, um, my father, um, I have a younger brother that's 18 months younger than I am, and my father... Um, told my younger brother and I to come with him. He was going to see our family doctor. And, um, and my father was born in 1912, so I really don't have 
any other recollection of him even going to see our family doctor outside of the uh, example I'm about to give. So, and so he, he told us, he instructed us to get into the car with him and we were going to see the family doctor. We got to the office of our family doctor and, um, I, and the, the, our family physician did what, we know, what I know now to be an assessment, a physical assessment of my father. Um, and he said, Mr. Robinson, shake my hand. And so my father shook his hand. And he said, okay, now punch my hands. And my father punched his hands. Um, well, I, I would like to preface this by saying that my father was 56 years old when I was born. Mm-hmm. So at this time, now he's in his 70s, okay? And um, so, so he, he punched my father, punched his hand, and he said, oh, oh, you're fine, Mr. Robinson. You're fine. So we got in the car, and... Um, if you hear my brother tell this story, he will say that um, my father couldn't make left turns. He, this is his memory. He remembers my father not having the ability to make left turns. Um, what I remember is that it took us a long time to get home that day, much longer than usual. Okay, So we made it home. And my father finally parked the car. He opened the car door and had a stroke. And he cut his brow on the glass because back then cars didn't have this metal around mm-hmm. the windshield. Mm-hmm. And so he cut his brow on the glass. Um, he survived the stroke. But I made a promise to my father at the age of 16 that I was going to go into health care and take care of him much better than he was taken care of right. during that time. And there's some other things that transpired while he was um, hospitalized. And, um, and so I, I kept that promise. And by the time I did it, he had passed, but but I kept the promise I made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so when you got, were finally able to make that transition mm-hmm. in, into healthcare fields, so you started out in nursing? I did. So um, as I mentioned before, I knowing that this was my goal um, and knowing that we are only stationed in areas for a certain amount of time, then I had to strategically plan my education. Right. So <laughs> that's why I have so many degrees. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the reason why. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. So, that works. It works. Yeah. <laughs> it does. And so I, I started attending the University of Maryland um, in the 90s, and um, I graduated prior to transferring. <laughs> and then when I Went to my next my next duty station. Then I started. I enrolled at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was concerned that I would not have the opportunity to finish my degree prior to transferring. So I left the bachelor's program and I went to earn my associate's degree okay. in nursing at Triton College. Um, and at the same time, I was simultaneously applying for the MESEP program, the commissioning program, and the Navy, which you have to be selected for. They don't grant um, the ability to, you know, go to school to everyone. So um, I was selected uh, for the program. And uh, when I was selected, I had one year left at Triton College, which was a two-year program. But the Navy did not recognize two-year programs. Right. Right. And so now my job was to go to school. Right, and so I had, a, I had a dilemma because if I left the program at Triton, then I would have to start over in the program at the University of Wisconsin. Mm. 
So what I did was I attended both schools. Mm-hmm. And so my first year, I had I took 21 semester hours um, for the fall semester. In the spring semester, I took 22 semester hours. And then in the summer, 12 semesters hours. So I was able to meet the requirements of the Navy and continue the program. And so once I finished, um, I graduated with my associate degree in 2002, my bachelor's in 2003, my master's certification as a health professional educator in 2004, and then my master's as a nurse practitioner in 2005. And then I took a break. I had to certify, uh, obtain my board certification, and I went back. And you also and, needed some sleep, I'll bet. And I was raising <laughs> yeah. my three sons. <laughs> right. I was raising my three sons as a single parent. Yeah. Right. And I eventually went back in 2008 and earned my doctorate with the University of Alabama. So when I meet young ladies that tell me you can't, that they can't do it, oh. I... I'm not that sympathetic because right. you can do it. You just have to have the determination and the motivation, and that has to come from inside of you. Or it could be external, right? Um, the fact that you want to be able to feed your family. Mm-hmm. You know, I will never forget that once I was divorced from my ex-husband and I was a single parent of three sons, I was so poor. I'd never been that poor before in my entire life, and it was an odd poor uh, because of the fact that I was serving my country and I could die for my country, but I, we could barely eat, you know. I, um, there was a McDonald's on Grand Avenue in Great Lakes, Illinois. I guess, I guess it's considered Waukegan or North Chicago, but um, I would take my sons and I would buy them a Happy Meal, a dollar. They had, on Thursdays, they had a 99-cent Happy Meal day. And I would buy my sons a Happy Meal for 99 cents. Um, but I didn't have a dollar to buy myself a meal, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, I think of where I came from and I think of where I am. And I'm so appreciative that I had the opportunity. But I also know that some of it had to come from within. And that's what I encourage young ladies that I meet to do. I encourage them to, you know, find your why. And let that be your reason for whatever it is. And it, two, it's a lot of times when we're going through those really hard, hard times, thank goodness they're short-lived. Right. And then you hit that and you're gone. You know, you're just yes. going, going straight up. So, yeah, it's tough. It mm-hmm. is very, yeah. very tough. Well, you know, this probably leads to this as well. You know, having a mentor is and has been an issue for many women in their career progression. Mentors, you know, smooth the paths and provide needed guidance. Obviously, your LPO is not. Um, (laughs) Is it possible to find mentors, men or women, while in the military after you've gone back to civilian status? I mean, have you had the opportunity to have a mentor? Or are you mentoring as well? Absolutely, I mentor. Okay. Yes, absolutely, I mentor. and I use every opportunity that I have to do that, mm-hmm. whether it be to mentor colleagues, whether it be to mentor students, whether it be to, and definitely to mentor other military members. Um, it's hard to find a mentor. As a woman, it's, I, I think it's hard um, to find a, a mentor, period, for some people, because people are busy, they have their own lives and, you know, um, but I do think it's even harder as a, a woman veteran to find a mentor. And um, part of it is because we don't know 
who the others are, right? Yeah. And um, and then the other, I think the other um, aspect of it is the fact that oftentimes what we see portrayed in others may not truly be who they are. And But I think it's important that we as people give back. I feel like it's important that, that we find a way to to um, to lend a hand to others because yes, um, mm-hmm. my the the parts of my life that were challenging were challenging. But the reality is, is you don't know where you're going if you know, if you know if you can't figure out where you've been. Right. You know, is mentors and mentorship part of the military culture overall? Does does that because of a higher you know it's such a hierarchical hierarchical system. Mm-hmm. Does that exist, though? Is there room for mentors and mentorship in the military? There is. Okay. okay. Uh, but oftentimes it's um, based on who you know and how well you know them. Okay. Right? So like, okay. I had people that were my mentors that I felt that I could approach and ask mm-hmm. things, like ask questions of or talk about career progression and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to get to know the person first. Like I couldn't, I don't feel that I could just walk into the room of someone and say, hey, you've made it. Can you show me how? I, I think they would like to know that I am also worthy uh, of the, your time, of their time for you. Absolutely, yeah, that I have both, the right, motiv- yeah. right, right motivation behind sure. my actions. Oftentimes, men still have these archaic stereotypes of women. And they had them when I joined, they had them when I served aboard ship. You know, they, they still have them today. And um, like bre- even breaking into some of the uh, veteran-centered organizations mm-hmm. that are led by men, when you're a woman, then then you, you're you can be frowned upon, mm-hmm. you know, for speaking up or. And when you're talking about six or eight hundred thousand veterans in just the state of Ohio, mm-hmm. we're the sixth largest state for the number of veterans living with us, mentors are needed. Yes. Um, whether it's while you're in the military or, or as a veteran, um, it, people cannot progress in their careers without having people supporting them. Yes. It doesn't change because you are in the service mm-hmm. and that you're a veteran. It may be more important, but uh, mentors are, are needed out there. So those... Those uh, folks listening to this podcast, keep in mind that when you are in your work situation, mm-hmm. look around. Who's around you? And if you have some veterans that work with you, um, try to, you know, put that hand out and make sure that they know that you are there if, if, um, if they need your help. Um, and mentoring doesn't have to be a supervisor to an individual. It can be even... Um, I have had people working for me who have been tremendous, mm-hmm. uh, Im- have tremendous impact on my ability to do my job. Mm-hmm. And so don't think of mentoring only as the person who works above you or who is somehow above you. It's, it's from all around. So uh, men- mentoring, mentoring is important. You, me- you mentioned that you do are doing some mentoring now. Tell us a little bit about that organ- the organizations that you're working with where you're okay. able to do that mentoring. So, um, so I was inducted into the Ohio Veterans Hall of Fame um, back in 2018 for my work on veterans' causes. 
2019, I was selected for the Ford Oval of Honor Award recipient, which I'm really proud to be a part of those organizations. I'm a member of Women Veterans Rock, uh, which is a nonprofit that, uh, organization um, based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where we, um, we support education, financial stability, um, uh, health care, and um, housing for women veterans and their families, right? Mm -hmm. Because we know that when veterans finish serving, if we have the ability to thrive in society, then, then we've done a good thing, right? Um, uh, leading our leaders where I, I, um, I've been adopted by uh, a school here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, the Sunshine Academy. Every year I speak to them on Veterans Day. Um, Every year I'm a part of their employment um, program so that they can see women as leaders, so that they can see that serving our country can lead to great things. Um, you know, when you think about the fact that our youth, less than 25% of them are even qualified for the military. You know, when you think about mentoring, that's important. That's important so yeah. that, that we can all find our way in society and find a way to give back in whatever whatever aspect that is, in whatever way that is. Um, I think mentors are extremely important, but more than that, I think that, um, I feel that if we don't develop a way that we can improve our society, then we're all at a loss. You know, I can think back when I was younger and in the United States, we were in the top three educationally in terms of opportunity, the top three. Where do we fall now? We talked about how going into the military is a scary time. When you're mm -hmm. walking away from everything you know, going to a place you've never been to likely, and, um, and, and possibly here, possibly in another country, um, with people you don't know from every possible walk of life. But coming out of the military could be just as scary. Talk to us about that change from leaving the military after 25 years and coming back into the civilian force. Um, were there s steps you took? Were there programs or services that helped you through those uh, changes? Um, what about things like, you know, how, what job do you get? Where do you live? How do you make sure you have, you're financially stable? Those kinds of things. What does the military do to help you through that? So they send us to TAP, the oh. Transition Assistance Program. Oh. Um, and it's, it's a week long, and it gives you a lot of information regarding things and, and services that are available to you once you leave the military. The problem is, is that you, when you're transitioning out of the military, you um, are, one, overwhelmed mm -hmm. because you know what you're wearing every day. You know who your friends are. You know what you're eating. You, you know, you know, and not necessarily what you're eating, but you know what your job is. You know what the expectations are, right? And now you're about to transition into this unknown, right? Um, if people were fortunate enough to have had jobs, they knew a little bit about the workforce, but not really, mm -hmm. right? Because we're young, we're young. I did work, but for how long? One year, right? So um, the impact of civilian service 
really wasn't that great um, on my life, right? So I was fortunate because I had a job that I could do inside the military and outside the military. Right. But that's not the majority of people, Mm -hmm. right? The majority of people have these uh, job assignments or job um, titles that don't really translate over to civilian service. And even if they did, how do you find where to go? You don't know, because now you've entered this great big world of more than 99% of people that haven't served, right? And you've got leadership experience, you've got longevity, you've got all of these things that you've done in the military, and and now you're offered maybe entry-level employment, right? right? Now you're treated as everyone else that may have even just come out of high school mm-hmm. and you're 28, 30, 40 years old, right? And so for me as a military member or a person who served my country, you know, I, I wouldn't feel that great about what I'm now doing, but I still have to be able to survive. So you you see a lot of military members that that have a hard time transitioning, and I think that um, the difficulty with transitioning is based on the fact that there is a lack of understanding of who we are and what we do, and then there's a lack of understanding of what we need to do to progress forward. So right. I think it's on both sides of the fence. Um, I feel that states should have programs that allow veterans, once they leave military service, to come back into society at a level where they should be had they not served, right? Right. I shouldn't have to start over just because I served my country for 10 years. Why wouldn't I be offered a position that was commiserate with my 10 years of experience, my 10 years of leadership, and my 10 years of of contributing to this country. Oftentimes, older adults have Mm -hmm. the issue of um, employers not understanding what their real skills and value are. Mm -hmm. But but with veterans, not only could an employer not understand, the the nomenclature makes no sense to them because the language is so different. Um, I do have to say, with the state of Ohio, the office, the Ohio Office of Veteran Services, has some great programs to help employers better understand, particularly looking at skill sets mm-hmm. um, for veterans. And um, so, if we have employers out there listening to this podcast, we'll include that information in our show notes um, because there is even um, a, a, a program that employers can use that mm-hmm. literally translates what you know if. Uh, what uh, if they if they need a forklift operator what is what is the title of the veteran who did forklift operating <laughs> you know make make that connection yes um so that is helpful i don't know that every state has that information so it that it, that could be a, a huge issue but we actually even have funding in ohio for employers who hire veterans so there's there's an incentive for them to do the extra job extra work in the hr process of being able to hire 
hire a veteran and, and make it work for their organization. So, yeah. That's true. Absolutely. And, um, and Ohio is also looking into um, allowing veterans to obtain licenses right. that are, you know, in line with what they did as opposed to, um, I would use medics as an example. You know, we have medics in the military that do a lot more than even nurses do in mm-hmm. hospitals. You know, they can start the IVs. They, they're saving lives, Right. right. They're saving lives. In very of, hard situations. Yes, of military members that are are injured, you know, and they're doing it by themselves, you know, without a written order from mm-hmm. from me as a provider, <laughs> right? right? right. Yeah. And then once once they leave the military, then they can either go back to school or their skills aren't known about or as valued. And and going back to school could mean that they need to work for their family because, you know, there's no income coming in. Um, They're going through programs that they already know the information. So, yeah, certifications are are a huge, huge problem. Going back to that TAP program, so you did that for a week before you left the military. Yes. Were there follow-ups that you could do? I mean, were they, like, say – you don't know what questions to ask until six months out, and you're like, oh, my gosh, why didn't I ask them this? Can you go back and get more information from those groups? No, that's it. Not if you've left the military. Yeah. Um, so if, um, if you could imagine that I just gave you information, gave information, gave information for an entire week, right, mm-hmm. in an organization that is meant to keep people there. Like, the military is not here to help you leave they are they're there to want you to stay they want you to continue to serve mm-hmm. right so so you're overwhelmed as a military member in terms of all the information that you're gaining access to all these things that you never had to think about ever I didn't have to think about going to the VA the VA I didn't have to think about finding a health care provider I didn't have to think about you know where to get a job I didn't have to think about where I would live because housing, you, you're provided housing, you know, and you don't have to think about, you don't have to think about any of those things. And so now this whole great big world is open to you and you don't really know what to do with it. And more than that, you're leaving behind your family, your, yeah. your new family, right. the family of veterans. And so it is, it's, 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 uh, it's transitioning is very difficult, which I'm really happy to know that now a lot of states are focusing on ways to improve transition for veterans, um, you know, I again, it's it's a little difficult because one, you have the veteran that left the military, and the things that they're facing, and in terms of, oh my gosh, I'm out here by myself, and then you've got all these areas that want to give you access to services, but there is no real connection of the two, right? Um, until the veteran finds their way into a place like the VA or until they learn about the, um, the different departments of veteran services uh, or the, the services that are available to us. But sometimes that takes years. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes decades. Yeah. Hmm. You know, that's an interesting point. When you are leaving your family home as a young person, going mm-hmm. into the military, it's literally an immediate change. Yes. And when you're doing that, leaving the military to civilian life again, it's this immediate change. You don't have time to experiment or think about it. Right. You just have to, like, jump off the cliff and, and go for it. If I'm, if I'm in the middle of, of changing my job, 
My house is still the same. My family's here is still the same. All those things are still the same. All I'm doing is changing a job. Yes. You're changing a life. Right. Going in and coming out. Yes. And it's the same way for our children, for the children we have, right? Because they attend a school for three years or two years, right? Or they're without their parent. So they know that they have a family, but maybe one member is just gone for six months, nine months, 18 months, or however long it is, right? Um, but they are, their lives are always evolving, and you don't have the security that you would have uh, if you had more of a constant life. So I did not feel that if I had just gone back to Chicago, right, that I could just pick up where I was when I was 19, mm-hmm. right? The, the people that I attended school with, their lives continued on. My family members, their lives continued on, you know. And, and, and you see this phenomena in veterans when they come home on leave, right? They are so excited. And in our minds, life for everyone else is this beautiful thing, right? They're enjoying themselves and they are you know, spending time together and they're having dinner and they're doing all these things. This is what we believe because we're off serving our country outside of the norms of our previous lives, right? Um, And when we come home, you know, we're looking forward to seeing everyone and we want to spend this amount of time with you, but it's usually for a week, two Mm -hmm. weeks, a month if you're lucky, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then after that, you go back to your life that's so different from everyone else's. And, um, and, and so it, it also contributes to how hard it is to transition back. And all of my friends are veterans. All of my friends, I've been retired now for almost 10 years and all of my friends are veterans. I have some that I am friends with that I worked with maybe when I was in Florida and different places. Mm-hmm. But you get so accustomed to that camaraderie that it makes it hard to transition out of it. Yeah. Wow. So let's continue on with the the issues and the challenges we were talking about, but let's drill down to what women are dealing with specifically as they leave active service. I'm assuming there are some mental issues that may be keeping women from flourishing in their communities. Uh, female vets dealing with the finding employment. Are, are jobs available? Salary levels equal? I'm sure it's a bit, it's a different challenge for women vets than it is men, correct? I think so, because I think yeah. that, that society is more accepting of men than they are of women. I guess I, I shouldn't say that they are more accepting, but I think that most organizations are still male-dominated. Right. Right. Um, well, and the, and the expectation is a veteran is a male. Absolutely. I don't think people think of veterans just as they don't think of people in this active service being female. <laughs> yeah. I don't think the, the, it's not the first thought in your head when you hear veterans, you always think men before women. Absolutely. And um, the military was predominantly mostly men. And when I joined, it was mostly men. And to this day, it's still mm-hmm. mostly men. Um, and so issues that women veterans have, when we transition back into society. We still have some of the same uh, concerns that men do, um, but the differences are, uh, the difference is is that we are also affected in other ways, like uh, reproductive ability after serving in certain 
areas. Yeah. So so reproductive um, concerns, right, um, are things that we face as women veterans. Um, you know, some some women veterans um, have been sexually assaulted, right? And sexual assault is something that no one should ever have to experience. But it's even harder when you're a part of an organization where you feel that or you know that the person you're serving with, you could give your life for them, right? And then you have to continue to keep serving, right? Um, you know, there are some behavioral health concerns due to the stress and the trauma. You know, most people don't get to experience war outside of a movie, right? Or, I'll, you know, you see things like if you look at what's happening in Ukraine right now, you know, we see the pictures on the news, but that's a small period or a small amount of time in our day. Imagine if you're living it. Imagine if 24 hours a day, that's what you're experiencing. And imagine that you're doing it because you want to serve your country, you know. And so it does, it makes it hard for anyone to transition back. But as women veterans, transitioning back into a society that, one, didn't even realize that we could join, right? Or one didn't even recognize that we were there. Um, to then come back and just try to pick up and carry on with your children, like we still have the same problems that everyone else does, right? With your children, with trying to find a house and just trying to maneuver your way through life. It does. It makes it really challenging. So, and with children, you're dealing with schools. Yes. Um, that they've had to change another time. You know, mm -hmm. they probably changed several times. Caregiving for children, mm -hmm. if you're t working. So there are lots and lots of additional issues yeah. that come about. You know, something that you just said uh, hit me when you mentioned Ukraine and hit me earlier in our conversation. It seems that when only 1% of our population understands the issues of military service, because in the United States, and, you know, we knock on wood, we've been lucky, um, we don't have what Ukraine is going through. We've not had the war brought to our shores um, in a long time. And it only happened for a short period of time during World War II, and before that it was the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So we've not had um, to give up anything. You know, mm -hmm. I still remember the, the, the stories my parents and grandparents told me about um, the, the little stamps that they would get to buy food, and particularly like meats and cheeses mm -hmm. and things that had to go because there were more people <laughs> in the military than were left back here at home. Um, but we haven't had to give up that sacrifice. But veterans have. Yes. If we think about January 6th, we slept on the steps of the Capitol. If we think about COVID, we were buying groceries for people who were ill. Right. If we think about the pandemics that we're facing right now, we've got the pandemic of COVID still going on. We've got monkeypox. We have RSV right, where mm -hmm. people are hospitalized at astronomical levels. And guess what? They are calling upon us to go and man these hospitals. So for us, we are still serving, 
regardless of whether we're in Afghanistan or Iraq or in Japan, Guam, it doesn't matter. We continue to serve, which is why it's important that as a society, we have to make sure that we care for veterans. Now, also as a society, we have to make sure that we are also prepared, right? And that's where that mentoring comes in, that mentoring that says that I am my brother's keeper, that says that I want you to do well just because you're you, just because you're a human being. Not, and not because it's going to give me anything back. Right. Nothing that's intrinsic upon me or, yes, or I'm gaining because of it. Mm-hmm. We have to make sure that, that we are investing in one another just like we are investing in these multi-billion dollar organizations without the ability to access care. The cost of the heart attack is much more expensive than the cost of high blood pressure, Mm -hmm. right? The cost of the effect on our mental stability is much greater than it is if we are prepared and if we give people a soft place to land. And so that's what I try to do as a mentor. That's what I try to do as a friend. That's what I try to do as a sibling. And that's mostly what I try to do, especially as a mother. Um, But I feel that as a society, we can do so much more, so much more. Um, And so you're right. We are not, we have not had to face the things that Ukraine has had to face. But when we look at them, one of the most admirable things that I see is the fact that they want to pull together and work together and be there for each other. Mm-hmm. And um, we saw that uh, in this country during September 11th. But after that, we've just kind of started transitioning back into uh, not investing as much in one another. Mm-hmm. So, Dana, we've already talked about a, a few successful programs, but are there other kinds of examples that you have of things that are working particularly for female vets, but for vets in general? Mm -hmm. So Women Veterans Rock, um, that was the one I mentioned them. I mentioned that organization, which is an amazing organization. Um, It's based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, with the Chesterfield uh, uh, College, uh, where, you know, we we help veterans, uh, women veterans and our families. Um, in terms of health care, housing, education, and employment. There's also Dog Tag Bakery, um, which has a partnership with Georgetown University, and now they've transitioned over to Loyola University, where they provide, um, there's a fellowship program for veterans that are disabled, um, you know, and, um, and there are multiple other organizations um, that I'm sure are that I'm sure exist to help veterans, um, but I, I feel like there could be more. We've got to bring veterans back to veterans to help us thrive. That's the only way. Mm-hmm. That is, I in my heart, I know that is the only way that veterans will have the that we will have the ability to thrive after serving our country. We've got to bring veterans back to veterans. We've got to invest in those things that help us, like veterans' homes. We've got to invest in um, helping us um, politically in terms of having the ability to uh, run for office. I mean, if you can imagine that um, people who are making decisions on what we do in our lives and how we live our lives and the wars we fight in 
a lot of them haven't served. Right. Right. So you make a theoretical decision for a human being without having an understanding of what that human being is faced with. Um, it, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense. It, it, and the expectation for us as veterans is so high. And we, we raise, we, we stand up and we fight and we, we raise the bar. We do all that we can. But at what point does society give back to us? Right. You know, at what point? Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and that's why it's important that, you know, for me, Veterans Day is every day. It's not just not just November. 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 Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And, every and day. we'll have information on our show notes about the programs you've mentioned, some other programs that we have here in Central Ohio. Um, but also for those listening who are not in Central Ohio, the first thing you need to do if you need help is to ask for help. And the first place you can go to is your local veterans office in the city, the county, or the state where you live get to them. They have those resources. They have that information. Mm -hmm. Um, You do need to ask for help, but that is absolutely your right to do. You you need to to ask, and it's okay. Dana, you've given us an immense amount of information and and insight. Um, Already a lot of words of wisdom, but any final thoughts you want to make sure our audience hears? I would say Let's make thank you for your service more than just a slogan, mm-hmm. right? Find a way to help a veteran and help us in ways that will allow us to grow in, um, once we're done with our military service and allow us to thrive in society. You know, Invest in those things, those promises that have been made for us. Invest in those promises that were made for us because we served, you know, don't, don't, don't have us leave our military service and then come back to a society that has thrived because of us but is not ready for us, you know. Um, and so that's, that's what I would recommend. We, we proudly serve. I'm so proud of my military service, and I'm proud that I had the opportunity to serve. But I want to see a society that's based upon, you know, um, things that will not just help me, that will also help my children, that will also help my neighbor, right? We've got to make sure that we are just doing the right thing as a, as a country. Well, many thanks to Dr. Dana L. Robinson-Street for joining us today. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And don't forget to check out our show notes for contact information and resources on our website, lookingforwardourway.com. And we're looking forward to hearing your feedback on this and any of our podcast episodes.